Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a podcast-only edition of The Book Club, which is itself a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host is Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. And joining us, we have author Carter Wilson at the book club. In fact, at the bookstore, we're here at the Boulder Bookstore. The Dead Husband is uh, Carter's latest novel. And uh, do... Listen to the broadcast edition because we talk a lot about the writing process, about the book itself. I want to talk about music because you are a fan of a band I was a huge fan of in the 90s. James is indie English rock band from the 1990s has appeared in your book and you give him a shout out. How, what is the connection? How did you get, were you a college radio DJ or something? What's going on here? No, but I I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s um, and I loved alternative music. And, um, you know, in the last 15 years, I just fell deeply in love with um, the band James. And I've become friends with them, um, and they uh, they allow me to use their music as quotes in the books. So every year, I'm like, you know, I reach out to the lead singer. I'm like, hey, can you help me find a, a quote that that might be appropriate for this? Um, and you know, a couple books ago, I wrote Mr. Tender's Girl, and that was uh, that was an '80s based uh, cafe that the woman worked in, and so I just love any kind of '80s Manchester music is is great for me. But how do you become friends with this band that you're a fan of, or did you become friends with them and then became a fan of their music? No, I I was a, absolutely a fan of their music, and you know, as an author, you're like, hey, maybe I'll get to know them if I ask permission to use some of their music. I know, man, you, you, you missed the groupie phase of your life, but you, we'll figure it out for you. And so that's kind of how it started, because I actually really did want to use some of their quotes, and the, the lead singer and lyricist just wrote back to me, and then when they came out to Denver a couple of years ago, um, we went out to dinner and, and went to their show, and backstage, I mean, it's just just great. So I'm, I feel very fortunate to have gotten to know those guys a little bit better. That was so fun when I read in the acknowledgements and I was like, oh, I love that band. The back in the day. That was cool. So I knew <laughs> there was... They just had an album come out yeah, last week. they have. I know. Going. And they played Glastonbury just a couple of years ago. I think maybe the last time Glastonbury was, was live. It's, it was so exciting to yeah, kind of go yeah. back and revisit some of their old stuff and see that they're doing some new stuff too. But anyway, I figured there was a fun backstory to that. Yeah. it wasn't yep. thrown in willy-nilly. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of fun things in the acknowledgements. I mean, the acknowledgements end with uh, you thanking the readers, except for one particular guy <laughs> who said he wanted to burn the book. Um, but you, you live in an age now, which is totally different than 20 years ago or 50 years ago, you know, where there's all this instant online feedback, if you want yeah. to give it that word. How do you handle that as an author? Do you look at that? Do you, does, it, does it get into your psyche at all? I mean, or, or is it... Or is it something you just brush off? Um, a little bit in between. You know, first of all, you know, writers, any writer you're going to talk to has suffered a lot of rejection in their life, um, professional life, maybe a personal life too, I don't know. Uh, so you have to have a tough skin, right? My first three books never even sold. Um, you know, I'm used to hearing bad things about my books. Uh, so as far as reviews go, I do look at them, particularly when a book is just starting to come out, because you just kind of want to know, like, you know, certainly I pay attention to, like, the trade reviews, like Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, Book List, that kind of a thing. But then you kind of want to see, like, what are people saying? And um, because it is a commodity. You are selling something. You're selling a product, and you want to see how people react to it. Um, it doesn't inform 
how I write, but it's interesting to me. Um, I had mentioned earlier that, you know, I'm seeing more than one review saying, oh, I kind of had guessed the ending. I'm like, oh, that's interesting to me. How, you know, does that change how I write next? Probably not, but that's curious. And yeah, some people hate it and that's okay. <laughs> you know, you're, you're totally going to expect that. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't at all, you know, stick to me. Um, so, yeah, but it's, and then after a while, you just stop reading them. But I like to see when the book comes out, like, how is it generally being received? You know, I like, uh, when I read mysteries, like I said, I, you know, my main category I read is pretty much literary fiction, but I read a few mysteries every year. And um, I usually, I'm not a typical mystery reader in that I'm not trying to guess or sometimes I'm just kind of open. What's the setting? What's the characters? What's happening here? And then at the end, Hopefully, it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere at the end, you know, right. for me. But I'm not actively trying to solve it. In this book, again, I don't want to give anything away, but I wouldn't say I guessed it, but I, I had an inkling very early on, which I actually felt was very satisfying because every time there was something that enforced, reinforced that inkling, I was like, hmm, maybe, yeah. maybe that crazy thought in the back of my head could be right. And so <laughs> in a weird way, I found it very satisfying to have, I wouldn't go so far to say I guessed it, but that I had an idea of, of at least there's a couple different mysteries going on here, but one of the mysteries I felt like I had, I had pretty early. So it's not all bad to do that, is it? No. And, and, you know, when I look at a book, when I sit down in a book, I don't ever think, you know, cause my books are labeled mysteries, they're labeled thrillers, they're named, labeled domestic suspense. Um, and who knows what any of those things really are. But in my mind, I'm not setting out to say, okay, this is a whodunit, and I've got to really have a good twist at the end. My, my idea is I'm going to just talk about this creepy family, and who knows what happens. Um, but it's not important to me that, you know, there's this solving of a case, whereas a traditional mystery kind of necessitates that. Um, so I think it depends on the reader what they're trying to get out of it. To me, I'm just trying to tell this organic story that's very dark and twisted, um, and and not having resolution often is is satisfying to me. Well, to me, the the big arc was Rose and her emotional journey. And we talked about this in the other interview that it was actually very satisfying the ending in that perspective, that she seemed to get what she needed from the whole escapade, albeit we don't know what happens next for her. But there was an emotional resolution. So. The difference, I think, between me reading mystery and maybe watching, you know, a, a TV show or a film is that you're along for the ride in a different way when you're reading, and especially when the writing is so good as well. I mean, so the ending or the whodunit or figuring it out, I mean, you're not going to stop reading the book if you, you know, even if it's revealed earlier on. You know what I mean? Where on a TV show or a movie, I think you have to have more of a suspense going towards the end. Yeah, that's a totally different thing because you're a reader, you're asking them to invest a lot more time and their own kind of emotion into into following a character throughout, you know, hours and hours and hours of reading. Um, whereas a TV show, you're, you're not quite usually as invested. So that's what's really difficult as an author is to know that, you know, are you satisfied after this emotional investment Um because you're you're so deep into it, you don't know. All I know is like when I go to write the ending, I have to feel emotional. I have to feel almost like I'm welling up, like, and it feels like this feels right, um, because now I'm kind of this person. Uh, so that's how I know this might be the ending. 
um, as I need to kind of go through that process. And it's usually <laughs> pretty like, it's pretty crazy. It's like, I do get very emotional at the end of the book just because I'm kind of feeling this character. I'm like, okay, that feels right. I'm surprised that you write so organically for something that has such an arc to it. And especially, right, you've got two mysteries essentially going on in this book, but you say essentially it just reveals itself to you when you sit down and write. That's fascinating to me because it all plays out so well. I mean, I know there's editing and, you know, you have readers and stuff who sort of guide you, but do you really only figure it out as, as you're writing it? Yeah, typically it's funny because I think of all these characters and just like, well, what about this? What about, I'm, I'm constantly saying, what if? That's how I write, is the what if of, of what happens next. And then about two thirds of the way through this book, I started to see these, <laughs> the parallels between the two characters. Like they, they're both going home. They both have this emotional baggage from their family. Um, you know, they both have losses and, and none of that was planned from the beginning. I just started to realize like, oh, they really have this connection that I never intended. And then once you kind of see it, you might go back and fortify some of that, but but not a lot. You just, again, you're just kind of hoping like that your subconscious is, is working and that it's all, you know, pointing to some direction that you hadn't quite realized yet. Well, given that your subconscious plays such a big role in this, do you feel that you're you know, absorbing things that are happening in real life. Like if there's a, a big murder case or there's a big mystery or a cold case or anything like that, do you, do you feel any of that ever kind of just, even by osmosis, just sort of gets absorbed into you and maybe comes out at some point? Yeah, I think more actually like watching shows. Like I'll, I'll binge watch shows and then I will just think about, well, how did they treat that character? Or why, why was she so compelling to me? Was it how she spoke? Was it how she walked? You know, and I think those things kind of because I, I write very <laughs> cinematically. I see everything in my head, um, whether it comes out onto the page or not, and that's important to me. Um, so, and it's funny because I don't actually describe a whole lot of things, um, but they're all vivid and vibrant in my head. And but then I I try to not overdo it when I because I, again I want to give the readers an idea of you know what they think people look like. Um, so, yeah. So there's one passage in here that, as a bookseller, I found particularly scary that the general public would not find frightening and probably didn't even notice it. So I'm going to read you this passage. <laughs> oh, boy. You're going to take me through this because, because I found it completely horrifying and the, and the whole industry, I think, would find it very scary. So Conlon is investigating Rose, and Rose is a mystery book writer, and he wants to... See, read everything she's written, but she has one book that's not out yet. So you wrote, without too much difficulty, Colin had been able to download the advanced reader's copy of J.L. Sharp's upcoming book, The Child of the Steps. So this, this I found very, like, reader's copies are supposed to be only available to people in the industry. So if Colin can just download a, a, a reader's copy, then anybody in the world could download the reader's copy and the whole industry would collapse. So I was just wondering, you know, can outside people download readers' copies? Or, or you figure most people are not in book selling and so that nobody would notice? Or Yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> took a little bit of liberties there. But it's, it's actually, that harkens back to my daughter, who's a big reader. Um, and, you know, a few years ago, she was waiting for a book to come out. And so she was going to read another one. And she just went onto some website and downloaded it. And I'm like, what? 
what, what is that? <laughs> yeah, that's not good for you as an author. Yeah, and it's not, I'm like, who knows what, for, I, we got into a big fight. Is this the dark <laughs> web, or is this just? It, it, it wasn't the dark web, but first of all, I'm like, you don't know, you know, your phone's getting infected <laughs> by doing this, I'm sure. But I'm like, that's money out of somebody's pocket. Like, you, you got to support the industry. Um, so, but there are, you know, you there are websites that, that definitely have, I don't know about advanced readers copies, but um, certainly you can, if, if you have the wherewithal and, and, you know, and knew what you're doing, you could, you could download it. And it's kind of pretty horrible. For sure. I mean, it was critical for the plot, so I understood why it needed to happen. But he could have had to subpoena the publisher and get, I don't know. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It wasn't available yet, so he's just like, he, he was very like, uncanny ability to do that. Don't worry, Arson. I don't think people are out there willy-nilly doing that type of thing. But I guess on the serious side, you know, you're, you're a writer in this industry that um, seems very... It, it's much more difficult, I think, for up-and-coming writers now. You know, yeah. um, it used to, used to, the houses used to be devoted to, like, they liked a writer, and if it took five books for them to have a, a big seller, then they would stick with them. And you don't see that as much now. I mean, how much, how much pressure do you feel to perform, be, be, you know, uh, commercially, rather than just follow your artistic muse? Or, or are you in a good place where that's not such a big deal for you? It's always a, there's always pressure. And I, I, I'm with Sourcebooks, and they've been great, and they've been committed to me and, and building me as an author and as a brand. And so I, I have no complaints there. But there, there's a, a lot of pressure. If you don't, a lot, of, a lot of houses, you know, if your book doesn't sell what they expected, even if it was profitable, you know, they're going to move on. And I've had that happen to me. I've been with a few different publishers over my time. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a really... <laughs> I don't want to say it's a terrible industry. It's a wonderful industry, but it's 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 a struggle to to make decent money doing it. And there's a lot of competition. A lot of people are self-publishing, um, and you're competing with just the noise of the world, right? So, you know, fortunately, readers are still strong, as you guys hopefully have have evidenced here, surviving the pandemic. But it's you're competing with everything and that's it it's always tough i mean did the pandemic influence anything in the next book was that written through the pandemic well that's actually interesting so this book uh, dead husband was actually um to take place in 2019 and so the next book would have been took place in 2020 and then i realized like i can't do that because i don't want to talk about the pandemic but i can't not mention it so we ended up backdating both books before this one was released. So um, I think the next book ends at the end of 2019 now. Um, and we all know what's going to happen. <laughs> That's the ending right there. <laughs> they plan a trip around the world right, and we just right. like all laugh in our heads. <laughs> yeah, so that was the only thing that I had to change. But, you know, I have lots of friends who had book releases last year and just, you know, they had tours planned and stuff like that. And that all just went to hell. So yeah. Well, we've spoken to several authors who've done that. In fact, we've only spoken to one author, in fact, two authors who've co-written a book that's directly connected to the pandemic, Pam Houston, the, a collection of letters. But I, I do wonder what we're going to see as, you know, a body of work coming yeah, out in the next I mean, couple of years. People be, I mean, I, I don't have any particular interest in reading about it, honestly. Um, you know, I, I, I think everyone's kind of saturated with it, but I'm sure there can be great stories told 
that have that as the background because there's a lot of really good personal stories that that I'm sure have come out of extreme circumstances. Um, but as a thriller writer, I don't particularly have a huge interest in that. Because well, so you're going to be locked in a house. I mean, that could be interesting because you can't leave. Right. <laughs> right. But even that, like, how many stories of that do you want to read? You know? Because we've all lived through it, too. There's going to be a big hole of books that take place in 2020 and 2021. Like you said, you backdated this, these books to 2018 and 2019, and then by the time the book after the next book comes out, you'll be able to set it in 2022, right? So. Well, it's actually funny. That, so the book that will be coming out in 2022 takes place in 1987. Okay. Uh, and I found just myself personally, you know, I've becoming much more nostalgic <laughs> for, for anything. Um, so I, I'm, I'm loving going back and rediscovering, you know, malls and, uh, you know, video game arcades and things like that. And it's a thriller and it's dark, but it's, it's, uh, it takes place back then. I'm like, okay. And it's fun because, Hey, there's no smartphones. What are you going right, to do exactly. now? I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been a challenge, um, for, for a lot of writers and how they deal with it. You know, now that there's smartphones, now that you can call from help from anywhere, that kind of changes a lot, a lot of the equations of the traditional mystery and thrillers. Yeah, I wrote one book that took place in 89, and it, it featured college students um, in horrible situations, and the lack of a phone was really cool. Because, and they don't, you know, they don't realize that they don't have a phone, you know, so, so they don't know what they're missing, but as the reader, you're like, oh, you're just, wait, you're just stranded, wait, you don't, you have to use a Thomas Brothers guide for maps. You don't have a <laughs> Google Maps. and Well, and as well as that, it's just how people communicate so differently right. now because of smartphones. I mean, I wonder, could Judy Bloom exist now with smartphones right. and social media? It would be weird. It would be weird. So, you know, I've heard that from, say, t young adult writers or writers who have teens protagonists that social media and smartphones has just changed so much how we communicate especially young people yeah. that the setting the timing of your piece is huge yeah, yeah. Well, well there's a lot less emotion i think in that communication these days it's like you would want as a reader you know you're not going to want to read about a string of text messages that <laughs> with zero grammar <laughs> attached TikTok to them. videos <laughs> yeah there have been a few books written like that i mean in this wall behind us of teen fiction i'm sure we could find a couple things yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean it's relatable but it's not for me. <laughs> well, it's going to be fun to revisit, you know, so the 80s and, you know, you mentioned you're a huge fan of music that came out late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, is that part of, you said you don't necessarily do a lot of research in terms of cop procedurals, but do you do pop culture stuff just to remember? Yeah. Was yeah. it that year that came out? Yeah. Well, and your copy editor would, would pick up on that, too. But for sure, I have a scene where this 21 year old woman is walking through a mall and, I'm, you know, like, I win or she goes into a video game arcade and it's important to me like oh this hadn't been released yet this game and so I have to make sure that you know this was a new game and so that's all that kind of research is super important and it's fun as hell like when you're looking at pictures of malls from the 80s and Walden books and all that stuff it's like oh yeah I remember all that Sam Goodies yeah 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 well we were at the pinball arcade last night in Lions it's like oh I wish they had more of these I mean <laughs> my kids were like Oh my god this is so weird it's like no this was normal it's yeah. fun yeah totally but aren't you feeling that kind of nostalgia a little bit of just like i mean i think even over the last several years it's just like this yearning for like 
normalcy, simpler times, and, and to me, it's just, I mean, maybe it's just that's the process of aging. <laughs> well, I think it feels like, to me, it feels like we're in a culture of overload, and so you start longing for a time when there was an overload, where you could go on vacation and you wouldn't have any email to check. You wouldn't have the cell phone. Like, for people who are younger, they never had that, yeah. you know? So they've always had, my daughter, you know, there's always been cell phones, there's always been email, and, and that's, you know, you don't, you're in contact. You're talking to people every day of your vacation, where when I was a kid, you went on vacation and you were just out of touch for two weeks. Right, and, and as a culture of what's happening now, like you can know instantly what's happening everywhere, and there's so much angst attached to that, that you know, even when things start getting more normal, you can always find negative stuff at, at your fingertips and that I think that wears on you after a while certainly wears on me so I, I I for one you know have backed off you know the last four years checking the news and you know I, at one point I was just checking the news for 15 minutes twice a week and that was it online and and that actually was very <laughs> helpful for me well I know in 2016 uh, a lot of psychologists were actually advising people and mental health professionals were saying stop checking the news yeah. and get off Twitter and actually this was a, you know almost being prescribed to people who are having high anxiety and mental health issues it's a big thing because it's it's such a huge thing but the, the other thing as well is you know instant gratification if, if we have a question or what was that guy's name or what was that book we don't sit around and think about it we just somebody pops out their phone and has the answer in literally two seconds yeah and I'm totally guilty of that yeah I, do that yeah. I mean it's you know because you want to know because it's just going to be an itch you can't scratch otherwise but, but the other thing I was thinking of is you know say with Netflix and just how we consume media like your daughter she couldn't wait for the book to be released so she just downloads the copy of it but remember back in the day, in the 80s and early 90s, you would wait a whole week for the next episode of a favorite TV show and you would be excited about that and have the anticipation. Now you literally stay up for 12 hours straight and binge watch a whole series. Yeah, and I'm not a fan of that. And I actually love when Netflix drops episodes once a week and because that to me is exciting because I'll, I'll watch with my girlfriend. I'm like, okay, we can't wait till next week because I think a lot of it is... you unsatisfying when you binge like that and there's some shows that are make sense to do that but I, I love that anticipation it's great yeah there's something about savoring it to know like hey Thursday night this is the time we sit down for this the week's been hard but Thursday at nine is my favorite thing you know Hill Street Blues maybe when I was you know younger who knows what it was you know but it was almost like a little mini vacation during the week and now you're going to watch 18 Hill Street Blues in a row, it's not quite the same thing. I'll tell you the other thing we're guilty of totally that we have the luxury of doing is watching the show and then constantly pausing it to discuss something about it. and Or like, what did he say? And, you know, you just didn't have that before. You just like, you you get what you get. And, and now it's like, go back, see that again. I want to watch that again. Or what do you think he's going to do next? And like 20 times an episode. And I don't know if that's healthy or not. Well, speaking of Netflix or movies, I'm always fascinated about the relationship between authors and potential film versions of their work. I mean, what you've written, obviously, as you said, it's actually very cinematic when you're writing it. Has this been optioned or is any of your previous work? That hasn't been. Yeah, Mr. Tinder's Girl, which was my fifth book that was kind of loosely based on the Slender Man stabbings, um, 
has been optioned uh, for potentially a TV series. Um, so they just renewed the option, so we're waiting word on if they're going to move forward with the pilot or not. And that's, you know, that's always a hit or miss proposition, but that's, I would love to see that. Would you have any creative input in that, or is it literally, here you go? Yeah, I yeah you, not not very much. They, they can't, you know, they can hire you as a consultant, but it's not obligated. Um, so you kind of just have to, like, hope for the best so your next book is written the neighbor yes and what about the one after that i mean do you have to constantly be looking i've just finished that i've got to start my next one yeah i'm halfway through that next one and and i'm at a place where you know again the halfway through point for me is pretty brutal because because i don't quite know where it's going you're deep enough in that you're like okay i gotta make sure this at least makes sense um but I expect to have that done by the fall, and then that won't come out till um, 2023. So I've got some time, but it's 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 a totally different type of book. Um, I mean, it's still a thriller, um, but again, you know, 1987, a 21-year-old girl who's actually a savant. Um, so uh, I've been having a lot of fun with it. Well, lots to look forward to, but definitely The Dead Husband is a page turner. I think I did it in two sessions, which is oh, great. pretty good because we got a new puppy and two small kids. So it was, it was a nice distraction for me. Well, Carter Wilson has been our guest at After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. And Arson Katz-Kashian, as always, my co-host, and I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.